0: You're listening to The Neighbors Podcast from Peterborough Currents. I'm Aisha Barmania. In Season 1, we're talking to people on the front line of the opioid crisis here in Peterborough. And today, I'm introducing you to one of the people working behind the scenes making harm reduction projects happen locally. And that's a man named Peter Williams. Right now, Peter is the project lead for the Peterborough Drug Strategy. He coordinates projects like the Mobile Supportive Overdose Resource Team, which was recently started to reach out and support folks who have experienced an overdose and who chose not to go to the hospital, as well as a few other projects. Before that, he was chair of the Peterborough Drug Strategy, overseeing the meeting of the collective and the high-level coordination of resources and the group's priorities. Peter's been involved in harm reduction work locally since he moved to Peterborough to take a position with Parn, doing education work. After that, he continued this work as uh, the community engagement liaison for Peterborough Police. He has a storied work and personal history in this field, and since he's been involved in a number of really important local developments on the opioid crisis, I wanted to ask him about how he thinks about this work. And when we spoke, he actually traced his roots back even further, back to the 90s, when he was working at an HIV-AIDS hospice.
1: What I know now, looking back, is that I was doing harm reduction work, but that wasn't necessarily the framework for it. So harm reduction now has come to mean in many cases very specific to substance use. Broadly, harm reduction work is anything in which you can help reduce the harms that might be associated with activities. And In the early days of HIV-AIDS, that was all about safer sex practices.
0: Harm reduction is a goal to reduce harms, and it's also a term for a wide range of projects and initiatives. And in the context of a public health crisis like HIV-AIDS, It can mean all sorts of things, including reducing rates of transmission so that fewer people get the virus. It also includes work like combating stigma and building community, which has been an incredibly important part of the response to HIV-AIDS. In 1981, when the virus was first identified in the mainstream, it was called gay-related immune deficiency because it was spreading primarily among gay men. And for a long time, there has been and continues to be misunderstanding and fear about interacting with HIV-positive people. And through the 80s and 90s, there was also a devastating lack of action by those in political power to act and save lives. Maybe you can start to see here the connections I'm making between the HIV-AIDS epidemic and the modern-day epidemic of opioid-related deaths. A disease impacting marginalized members of society, a lack of swift political action resulting in deaths, and a pervasive stigma among a misinformed public. This is the setting that Peter Williams got his foot in the door doing harm reduction work. And I found it a really interesting component of what shapes his work today. As you're about to hear in our conversation, Peter's perspective is to cast as wide a net as possible, while also working to serve specific community needs. And this is a philosophy that goes back to his HIV-AIDS work.
1: HIV-AIDS in the early days was very much a gay man's disease, but the response to it was very much LGBTQ, um, which I think we need to remember. Um, but you know, I can think back, there were different points in the evolution of the response to HIV-AIDS, where suddenly it was like okay, these responses seem a little too focused on gay white men. And so where is where is the response from the um, Black, Indigenous, people of colour communities? Because we need something that uh, looks maybe a little different for our responses. And then women were like, we need something that's maybe a little more specific for responses to us. And so it, it's challenging to think about how you create community and inclusivity so that they encompass as many people as possible, but also have tweaks to them that speak to people in a really specific way because that's what they need to be. That's what they need to hear. And that's what they need in order to feel seen for the intervention or the, or the, whatever it is to be effective. And I think that's part of what has always interested me and what's driven the work that I do is how do, how do you how that juggling act? How do you how do you do that? So, for pretty much any project I've ever been involved in, whether it's you know working HIV AIDS, whether it's uh, trying to figure out uh, neighborhood crime, whether it's about trying to resolve something through City Hall, whatever it is, the one of the core basic solutions that is at the heart of everything is always connection and community and belonging. So I don't care what your problem is, at some point that's gonna be one of the key factors to your solution. Uh, that is a core truth and it's been true for forever. And yet we still struggle to figure out how to make it happen, right? So um, we just have to re- keep repackaging, reframing, um, renewing that core message in ways so that people will hear it and find ways to respond and engage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you were chair of the Peterborough Drug Strategy for for a number of years. I wondered if you could speak to how that philosophy fit into the work you were doing there in that role, actually, because you're still there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, I've, I've shifted. I've, I'm, I'm with the Drug Strategy shifted roles. Um, I'm now a project lead with the Drug Strategy. Um, my role before was started out as a representative uh, of Parn at that table. Uh, Parn is one of the pillar members and um, Peterborough Police are another pillar member. And so when I was chair, I was actually uh, working as the community development and engagement coordinator with the Peterborough Police Um, Public health and forecast are the other two pillars. So I think the way that that fits in terms of the drug strategy philosophy is that we recognize that um, people, human beings are complex and face complex challenges and that the drug strategy's mission is to um, try to minimize the harms that would be associated with substance use uh, at both the individual and community level. And you can't solve complex problems with a single approach. So that's why it's a four-pillar structure. It's kind of that wraparound approach. Um, How do we recognize uh, all the different parts of an issue um, and then figure out how to best address them? The way the drug strategy is structured is that each of the pillar partners has uh, a designated Representatives that participate in the regular meetings and the the development of the drug strategy, and so I was at that table uh, on behalf of Parn for uh, I guess it was about five years, and and so through that opportunity, got to know our police partners a little better and some of the work that they were doing. Um, again, you can I think most of your listeners can easily imagine that as a. Uh, a teenager in the uh, '70s and um, young man in the early '80s, uh, uh, as a gay man, like that wasn't that didn't necessarily intersect well with the idea of policing. So the fact that I I have at this point in my life ended up working for police is quite amazing and was a it continues to be one of the highlights of my um, experiences, but um, getting to know the police partners and some of the work that they were trying to, to do in terms of, um, improved, uh, community partnerships, uh, community building, they created a brand new civilian position, um, that, uh, is the community development engagement coordinator. And it really intrigued me. Like, again, it wasn't something that I would have expected police to necessarily do. Um, and one of the key components to that role is police wanted somebody who would be able to say, you know, I think you're getting it wrong right now. Like, I, I I really need you to hear a community perspective and think about this from a different angle. And can we problem solve and go forward from there? And so, again, I think I just had a certain skill set that facilitated my ability to be able to do that. And um I think that's true for Emily Jones, who holds that position currently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and do you mean like in, in terms of like planning responses or projects in terms of law enforcement, having that kind of community perspective?
1: Yes. So I, again, I think often when we think about assets-based community development, um, folks can look into a situation and think, oh, uh, you know, we think that, I don't know, this issue must be the the priority for for the community, um, and when you talk to them, it turns out that actually their biggest concern is uh, people speeding through the neighborhood, and that their kids don't feel safe playing on the street. Um, it could also be about uh, I remember the first Black Lives Matter uh, rally that took place here in Peterborough, and um, you know, police being like, "Okay, we see how some." communities uh are how this plays out in some communities but we want to try and get this right from the beginning my role was to see how i could help connect them to the community stakeholders that um could help them navigate that and and find a way for that to happen uh that police were seen to be doing taking a community safety perspective but also appreciating the community needs at that time and supporting that.
0: Yeah, more of the building bridges, building connections. Right. Helping to make those nexuses of people who might need support as well as community. Yeah. To talk about more of the project work that you're involved with as well, I I know you kind of, uh, I think you were still with the police when you were uh, working on stuff like the MSORT project and uh, the CTS application. Um, I wondered if you just wanted to talk a bit about those projects
1: uh, you you brought up CTS, so I'll start with that. So that's the um, consumption and treatment services sites uh, that would previously been known as uh, safer injection sites or safe consumption sites. So that was something where it was really more through my role. Well, it, it was where the, my two roles collided uh, as being chair of the drug strategy and the community development engagement work coordinator for Peterborough Police. I was hearing from lots of different partners about how strongly they felt about a CTS and wanting to move forward conversations and recognizing that it was way bigger than either the drug strategy. Certainly, uh, you know, it's relevant to police and police play a supportive role, but this is a health issue. So you're looking for different leadership around that. Um, And so my involvement in terms of the early days of the CTS conversations was really trying to make sure that as many of the partners as were needed got to the table, and then it took on its own life. So I have very little to do with that at this point, point. and um, as Currents has covered, um, you know that there's currently an application in with the provincial government that was really led by um, Forecast, Parn, and the three sixteen nurse practitioner-led clinic. Um, with lots of partners involved in supporting, um, including public health. Um, the MSORT project, this was, uh, there was funding, still is funding available through Health Canada, their Substance Use and Addictions Program. And this was a great opportunity. The Deputy Chief Tim Farkerson came to me and said, you know, this funding is available. We can apply for funding. Um, how can we, what, what can we do to mobilize a community project that would uh, help us address overdose and the opiate crisis um, slash drug poisoning crisis? Um, and he had this idea of wanting to figure out how to also engage peers, people with lived experience more in the, in the work. We, again, we just had several community forums invited people's ideas about what we could design and apply for. And I kind of joke that this is a great example of where a uh, part of my job was, um, I'm using air quotes since people can't see me on the radio, um, uh, defund police, that this was a project that really um, police were in a position to apply for the funding and had the The administrative uh, capacity to manage the funding and take care of the accounting and all of all of the things that often drown uh, small not-for-profits, but every cent of that almost $3 million over two and a half years going out to the community. So uh, there's no money being spent on anything to do with policing. It's all the community-based paramedic, it's uh, complex case managers in addictions, um, and it's uh, peer support outreach workers um, and a partnership between forecast Parn um, paramedics and police.
0: Follow up on that point about... um... The, the idea of defunding the police and how it fits into the the sort project because I, I think it's really interesting like what do you think is the role for for police in uh, in kind of backing away from from potentially the frontline response to to the overdose crisis
1: I think that it's definitely about right sizing the police frontline response um, and if you're talking about specifically when an overdose occurs um The unfortunate thing is that this crisis is complex. And as I said earlier, I always try to include overdose, opiate, drug poisoning problem. And so part of the problem is about drug poisoning. Um, That's absolutely, it includes a criminal enforcement policing lens to it in terms of trying to figure out how to solve that problem. Um, It's about how people are driving an illicit drug market. And so uh, there's lots of moving parts to that. And one of them includes an appropriate police response. And so it's trying to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't further marginalize the folks who are um, overdosing um, and the folks that need support. So I don't know if that does that kind of answer the question?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So less about defunding police, but just figuring out the right way for them to be involved at the right time and place and size and scale.
1: Yes. And I think, uh, again, you know, for folks who were around in the uh, 80s and 90s when it was about defunding institutionalized mental health which is exactly how we're in the current situation, or one of the main reasons we're in the current situation we're in, is that um, people called for a dismantling or a defunding of a particular framework. And the government was like, awesome, we can take money away from that. And so they did. They didn't reinvest it anywhere. So I think that if you take the defunding label too literally i think it's really dangerous i think that we have to focus on where's where are the where is the deficit deficits been for far too long and if we fund mental health mental wellness uh social services uh address poverty get a guaranteed basic income uh support um you know support families and parents and kids um and really invest in that the way that it should be, we won't need to defund police because those budgets would automatically be reduced because the calls for service will—they just won't exist, right? And I don't—I don't know. I personally do not know a single police officer that would not love to see that happen,
0: right? Do you see your your the work that you're doing um, as fitting into the those kind of like anti-poverty wraparound services that you described as like? If, if we invest in these other spheres, um, we'll need police uh, less?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's been a, a theme through uh, all of the various jobs that I've had through my career. But again, specifically in that role working with police, um, the, the focus there very much is crime prevention through social development. So anti-poverty work is community safety and well-being work which is police work
0: which is community health which is public health which is <laughs> civic engagement which is everything exactly yeah it's it's fascinating stuff and i, I also wanted to turn next to to another project so I, I, after your work with the police and as chair of pds you are now the project lead uh for two different projects so msort and um the second one is the uh Oh man, I don't have it written in my notes. Uh, housing housing unit takeover. Yes. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that second project?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, and again, just so folks understand, I'm a project lead with the Peterborough Drug Strategy within that portfolio. I'm attached to two projects. One is the M-Sort, so the um, Mobile Support Overdose Resource Team. Uh, and I'm... I play a small role in that project now uh, just helping support um, knowledge transfer and training and education components. Um, <clears throat> the other role I have is coordinating the housing unit takeover project. So again, this is where there was specific funding available through police, uh, through pro- what they call a proceeds of crime grant. <clears throat> and when I went to community partners and it happened to be at a drug strategy meeting to say, so here's this call for funding. What would you like, what, what do you think we can do that's like that crime prevention through social development lens? Um, Cause I I don't have any ideas and they were like, well, the the two of the partners that spoke up first were uh, forecast and CMHA. So addiction services and mental health services, both of whom who provide supportive housing, and what they started to describe to me was this phenomenon called huts or housing unit takeovers, where um, tenants have their unit taken over uh, through coercion and manipulation. And while huts can look like all sorts of things, so it, at one end of the spectrum, it might look like the, the son or daughter or Brother or whoever that's moved back in with parents, uh, or, or, or an older parent, they're, they're usually on their own and, um, start to take over their finances and start to take over their living arrangements. And, and slowly that person's, um, life is made smaller and smaller while this other person, uh, takes over. But that continuum goes all the way up to very intentional business based gang involvement. And gangs will come in and they will um, make connections with folks by leveraging their vulnerabilities, whether that's an addiction, mental health issue, whether it's a cognitive impairment, whether it's uh, just the, the the primary factor is uh, isolation, social isolation, disconnection. Um, so again, you'll remember I said, no matter what the problem is, often connection, belonging, building community as part of the solution. So those vulnerabilities are leveraged and the gang members will move in and they will use the tenant like as a front or a beard to cover their operations of um, drug trafficking, uh, gun trafficking, human trafficking, um, and, and, you know, what has happened in the past is that often people don't see past the beard. And so it's the already marginalized tenant who ends up being evicted because of this activity. And so part of this project is about building awareness so that we can see past that and recognize what's happening behind the scenes so that we can keep the tenant safe, take a trauma-informed approach to supporting them and intervening to address the the unit takeover that's happening.
0: Yeah, and I I know it's fairly uh, early on in the project, and uh, I think it's going to run for three years, is that right? Um, Yeah, we're funded
1: to March 31st, 2023.
0: To what extent do we understand that this is happening already? Like, Do we have numbers yet, or is part of the project
1: to... Part of the project is to get a better sense of how pervasive this is, because the concept of unit takeovers and that vocabulary is fairly new. So and it's not necessarily a tick box when people are tracking data. I will say that a, a few times now, when I've talked to folks, um, they have estimated that anywhere between 25 and 30 percent of their housing stock uh, is on a continuum of housing unit takeovers. So that makes it pretty pervasive. And it's and I, and again back to the issue of addressing poverty. You know, what the community sees is the is the superficial activity and they will blame it or attach it to um, the folks in the social or supportive housing and say, oh, yeah, it's it's those people with poverty issues or those people with addiction issues like they're the problem. No, gangs are the problem. uh, And we need to right size that because it's undermining our efforts to end homelessness.
0: Right. That makes sense. Um, and I guess to to ask you a bit more of like a personal question about this work, like so you went from the chair role at p d s and have now become a project lead, so I guess I wanted to to know a bit more about why you made that decision like why why do you feel like you need to be in this position at this moment?
1: Um I think there's two parts to my answer um, I, in terms of why i I thought I needed to make the change um that was very much about, I think everyone has a shelf life. Everyone has a best before date uh, to their work or to the way they're doing the work. And that um, at least for me, I know that I can, it's easy to get stale if you're not finding new ways to think about and approach things. And I, I think the work that's done Uh, with the Peterborough police uh, and that role of community development engagement coordinator is really important. And as I said, requires you to be able to challenge uh, the way things are done all the time. So you're always trying to say, is this really the best way we're supposed to do this? And 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 that's exhausting sometimes. (laughs) Um, And so quite frankly, I was exhausted. And I thought, okay, I still want to do this work. I need a different way to do it. And what I have always appreciated about the collaborative nature of Peterborough and the organizations that I've worked with is I always describe it as it's about tending to the ecosystem uh, of Peterborough from a social services and health lens. And so to me, it doesn't matter whether I was a chair or a executive director or a frontline worker, it's all about figuring out ways to tend to the ecosystem of Peterborough. Um, And so I think I can do that um, just as effectively or in a different way, but, but effectively from where I'm working from now than where I was when I was with police. And again, I have to say, I'm, Thrilled that Emily Jones is in the role currently there and is a value added to the community because she was somebody that's new. So I kind of feel like, you know, we did a bit of a a, a mix around, but we also got this great added uh, asset to the community. And so uh, I think it was a a great decision, even though I didn't know how it was going to play out.
0: What do you think is important for folks to know or understand about, you know, particularly over... Opioid crisis or, or overdoses in general, and, and you had talked about um, drug poisoning as well. What do you think is important for the community to understand?
1: Wow, I, I think it's important that it's understood as a complex health issue. That it can, it can, and does affect everyone and all sorts of people. That there's not one type of person that uh, is is susceptible to uh, substance, uh, substance use disorder or addictions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard Aisha, cause I think I, I, I can't, I suppose I should have, I, I suppose if I was asked, I could prepare a kind of a soapbox here, here are the four points I think every person needs to know. But I mean, in the context of our conversation, I think it's another one of those, um, how do we meet people where they're at? Like, I think the most important thing for people is to be having conversations, to be engaged in actively in dialogue about how this is affecting our community and how people can make a difference. Um, I think it's assumptions about who believes what or who holds what position is part of where we face the challenges. So um, I think the most important thing is how do we invite everyone into this conversation because it's everyone's problem.
0: Thanks so much for your time today. And I I really appreciate uh, your openness and you sharing your story with us.
1: No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. It was produced and hosted by me, Aisha Barmania. The guest was Peter Williams, project lead for the Peterborough Drug Strategy. You can find out more about that group at peterboroughdrugstrategy.com. Music in this episode comes courtesy of Hurricane Charlie. Check out their music on Bandcamp. This podcast is a Peterborough Currents project where a reader and listener supported news outlet for the Peterborough area. If you like the work that we're doing, I hope you'll consider supporting us with a financial contribution. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening and bye bye for now.